I'm Kim Raycon, Marketing Associate for Harper Academic, and I'd like to welcome you to this episode of Harper Academic's podcast, Harper Academic Calling. Our podcast is designed to give educators and students, as well as every reader, a behind-the-scenes chat with a range of our authors, from well-loved favorites to up-and-coming debut writers, about their books. Harper Academic Calling, Helen Sedgwick. Recently, I chatted with Helen Sedrick, whose debut novel, The Comet Seekers, was published mid-October. The Comet Seekers tells the multi-layered, trans-historical story of Rochine and Francois, who meet on a remote research base in Antarctica and are immediately drawn to each other. Unbeknownst to them, their bond stretches back centuries, connecting them to each other in ways neither could imagine. A novel about intertwined histories and families, love and loss, and the choices and connections we make and miss, The Comet Seekers is a skillfully crafted and emotionally rich debut. Our conversation for this episode stemmed in part from an earlier Q&A Helen and I did to celebrate The Comet Seekers publication day. You could find that interview on the Harper Academic Tumblr page at harperacademic.tumblr.com. Look for the post entitled Pub Day. Thanks to Helen for her time and very thoughtful conversation, and for the chance to make our first transatlantic phone call for the show. Hello? Hi, Helen. Hi, Kim. Hi, yeah. Hello. So, I was just looking up how to dial to America. No, it's... <laughs> it's, a, it's okay. Apparently, um, I, I was adding a number, and I just kept getting a busy signal. Uh, so, uh, was it the, the O at the beginning? Yeah, it was an O at the be- Apparently, you don't need the O at the beginning. Yes, I just Googled that. Uh, <laughs> How are you? I'm well, thank you. How are you? Great, yeah, very well. Uh, Helen, thanks so much for being connected to us transatlantically. <laughs> My pleasure. <laughs> Now, I was wondering if we could talk a bit about uh, The Comet Seekers. It's a really great multi-layered, multi-textual novel, I think. And I'm wondering if we could start um, with a bit about one of the questions, sort of flip version of one of the questions that you and I did in our Q&A. So in the Q&A, I asked what fiction can learn from science. So let's, let's flip it a bit. What do you think science can learn from fiction? Um, well, there's, there's a huge amount of overlap, I think, between science and fiction, um, mostly because both are, both are subjects that I think are driven by a sort of quest to understand. They're both very curious subjects, and, and scientists and writers, I think, share this desire to try and explore the world uh, more deeply than than we see it on the surface. Um, so what can science learn from fiction? I think, I think a lot of modern day science requires a huge imaginative leap to really get our, get our brains around it. I'm thinking of things like quantum mechanics, for example, particle physics, nanotechnology, these new subjects that are really, um, really working on, on length scales that are completely different to to how we live our day-to-day lives. Right. Um, and, and these subjects are showing us that the world is far stranger than, than we know. You know, weird things are happening in quantum mechanics, very weird things. And the only, re- the only way we can visualize them and start to grasp them is by making a really big imaginative leap and, and allowing ourselves to live in a slightly different sort of world. And I think that's what fiction does. I think that's what writers 
writers and, and all artists are very good at doing, I think, is, is letting go of the practical realities of our, of our day-to-day lives and welcoming a, a new idea, you know, opening our minds to that new idea. Um, so I think that from fiction is, is, is a, a skill that can definitely be applied to science. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's great. Um, and now I'd like to kind of ask you a professor of practice question. So, so you were, you were, and maybe still are to some degree, a, a research physicist. Mm-hmm. And now you wrote a novel. So uh, one of the things that you really like is about the, the, the science part of your brain and your life is scientific inquiry and how there is always this kind of constant questioning um, as answers constantly evolve. How do you balance that love of questioning with trying to plot a novel? How do you not just kind of fall down fall down the rabbit hole like, like Alice? Um, well, for me, I think writing a novel is a process of falling down a rabbit hole okay. <laughs> to quite a large extent. Um, and certainly when I, when I start out writing a novel, I'm not trying to stop myself from falling. I'm sort of, I'm sort of leaping in there. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think um, in, in practical terms, though, I think you do have to get to the end of the novel sooner or later. Unfortunately, we can't just write forever and ever. At some point, it has to become a book, you know, that's sent out into the world. Right. Um, so for me, it, it, on a very uh, sort of a, uh, on a very practical level, like I say, I, I normally start at the end of the book. So the oh. first thing I write uh, when I'm writing a novel, and this is true of the Comet Seekers, is the final scene. And that means that when I'm writing, I sort of know know what resolution I'm heading towards. You know, I know how I want the characters to feel or um, the kind of understanding they've come to or if it's a sad ending, the kind of crisis point they've reached. And the novel is then exploring how they got there. You know, how do these people who started somewhere completely different find their way to this this final scene in the novel? And I think that gives gives my writing a certain focus and it, it stops it from going off on too many tangents, much as I would like to. So do you... Do you that, that's really interesting to me. Do you think that then beginnings especially like first first sentences are really hard for you are they difficult for you to write since you since you know where you want to end up does the working backwards easier or or not um i've never found beginning particularly hard i must admit but i think i definitely do tend to write my way into things a lot so i'll I'll write the final scene and that normally stays that's so far um, that's been something that's remained in the final version of the book uh-huh. I then start at the beginning what I think is the beginning and, beginning and write my way towards the end and then I'll go back to the start and chop it and I, I chop away quite a lot from the start of the book um, so I don't struggle with opening sentences because I don't write them until I've written quite a lot before uh, <laughs> if that makes any sense yeah no that's that's and really when you know, it's not until I'm reading over it until I've written the whole thing that I realise ah that's that's where it starts. That's the opening there, which is normally several thousand words into the book. Right, right. Cut away and cut away. So but to go back, can I jump back quickly? Sure, absolutely. Uh, book evolving as well, because I was just thinking about it there as I was <laughs> answering your other question, that I think stories can constantly evolve even after they've been finished as well. I think a book, uh, a book is inviting the reader to interpret it in new ways all the time. And so every time it's in someone else's hands, they'll take something new from it or they'll, you know, they'll pick up on a different aspect or relate to a different character. And so in a way, the book can keep evolving long after the 
Yeah, I, I think it's a fascinating thing, isn't it? What we call mad, what we call reality. What, you know, the way we uh, the way we place these restrictions on how our mind is supposed to cope with the world around us. Um, I love I love Severine because she certainly embraces imagination. Um, but I, I also wanted to leave it very much up to the reader as to how you want to interpret the ghosts. Yeah. Um, whether you want to believe that Severine is in fact mad, if she's hallucinating, if if there's some kind of illness that she's inherited from her grandmother down the uh, sort of down the generations of her family, um, or if she just chooses to live in a in a sort of fantasy world because that's where she feels happier. Um, and and all these these are all questions I'm quite fascinated by. And again, the the sort of parallel with Liam is really interesting because at a couple of points in the book, I suggest that Liam could see ghosts if he wanted to. Mm-hmm. Like they sort of appear and then disappear again because he's someone who would never turn to that. Like he he's absolutely refuses to turn to his imagination. He just sort of, uh, he looks at the, the harshest version of reality all the time. Um, and it's, it's quite a dark place for him. And I think there's I think there's some truth in that. I think it's. I think we need our imaginations to to cope with what life throws at us, really. Yeah. So I Severine is an extreme version of that, certainly. Yeah. Um, and her imagine, imaginative world, or, or her sort of fantasy world, if you like, becomes her whole world. Um, uh, perhaps uh, happiness lies somewhere in between the two. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and I also think it's interesting too this this question of how many people are are haunted in in this book, and they, and they can be haunted um, sort of in its most literal sense by these ghosts, or it can be haunted by a real kind of deep and raw sadness. I mean, one of the things that really struck me is kind of how maybe if not sad how how melancholy a lot of the a lot of the tone of the book is mm. and i just wonder who do you think is is most haunted in this book um to, i mean to some extent they all are you're right and i, I think we all are i think human beings are, are haunted you know i think we're all products of what's come before us whether we want to see that or not um, and we all have a past, and, and you can't really shut that out. That's our past is a part of who we become, and so in one way or another, I think human beings are, are haunted creatures. I think that's what we are. Um, who is most haunted? Um, you can have more than one answer. It's okay. Oh, it's hard. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think probably Roisin, um is is most haunted by what's happened in her own life. Um, I think certainly her. Um, relationship and what happens with Liam is something that is going to be a, a huge haunting in her life um, and, and something that she's really going to struggle to get over. Um, so Rasheen is probably the most haunted in terms of her, her past. Uh, Severine, I would say, is most haunted in terms of her uh, her sort of ancestors. Um, she gets the actual ghosts, but in a way, I would say she's the least of the haunted, the least haunted of the characters because. She's so happy with them, you know. She actually gets to live with them and argue with them and play with them, and uh, and most of us don't get to do that with what we're haunted by. You know, yeah. It kind of follows us and it whispers to us, but we can't really engage with it. And I love this idea of Stephanie actually being able to engage with the people who are haunting her. You know. Yeah, and she. I mean, she even plays hide and seek with them. <laughs> <laughs> right. I think that's that's definitely one way to deal with our ghosts. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> 
Yeah, and I'm and I wonder too about this idea between between how how love works between all of these characters because love is something that is very complicated, complex in this novel. Whether it is complicated in and of itself, or whether characters choose to maybe make it more complicated than it needs to be at times. Mm. Yes, I think that's that's something we often do as well. We sort of overcomplicate love. Yeah, I do. I, do. I totally do. All <laughs> uh, the characters manage to do that, uh, perhaps apart from Severine, who yeah. again just sort of embraces the love she feels for her family and doesn't seem to, to worry about finding love anywhere else, actually. She seems quite self-contained in a way. And perhaps that's because she does feel such a strong bond to her family. She sort of doesn't need anything outside of that. Um, Rasheen certainly overcomplicates. Rasheen and Liam both, I think, uh, massively overcomplicate love, and they confuse it with obligation as well, I think. Yeah, yeah. Obligation and and guilt, uh, too, later on in the book. And love shouldn't really be confused with those things, or at least when it is, I think it becomes... uh, It becomes... (laughs) <laughs> more complicated than it is. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, I do think there's often, like in the love we feel for our families, I think there is often a layer of obligation mixed in with that, and it can be quite hard to separate the two. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I often, I, I think the book is, to a large extent, is about this sort of the, the desire we have to belong somewhere, you know, to be with family or with home or with the people we love, and, and the sort of conflicting desire we have to be free of them. And I think that sort of that pull, that kind of push-pull between wanting to wanting to belong and wanting to be free, it can also be seen in a sort of wanting to wanting to love, but also feeling the obligation that comes with that, that, that can mean a, a lack of independence, perhaps. Um, I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, and I mean, and also the I think sort of the fullness of of lives that these characters kind of allow themselves to have as a result of as a result of how complicated or not um they make they make their love because like francois to me never really seems to understand his mother um there is sort of this need well there is a need in in the book um for for him to kind of diagnose her or to have someone else diagnose her to kind of clinically solve solve her issue um and she kind of she has like this this great retort to him when she when she says you know my life is more full than you know and I think that that's, but that's also hard for her to, to, to admit, maybe, because she realizes that her, the richness of her life and the fullness of her life, to me, seems to come at the expense of her son. Um, yeah. and, and, and so in some ways, to me, she seems to kind of continue the pattern of, of women in, in her family kind of neglecting, not neglecting, but losing, losing children. Yes. Yes, I think it's... Uh... Yeah, that's one of the saddest parts. I love, I love Francois. I love Francois. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, I, I think it's uh, there's a huge separation between them. I think they're they're very close and that they've lived together all their lives. They're, they're physically very close and they grew up uh, in Francois' childhood. He was very close to his mum, but at the same time, there's this distance between them that that he's never going to be able to cross. Um, and she sort of she knows that, and it's it's very. She recognises that, and it's a, a sad moment in the book. Um, and I think maybe Francois recognises that he can never completely know his mother. I think maybe he... 
I hope I hope one day he'll be able to let her go. Um, uh, I'm not sure that happens in the book, but maybe it will happen after the end of the book. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, at the same time, I think we maybe we never do completely know our parents. You know, there's always this hidden bit of their lives that happened before we came along. Do you, do you ever feel that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There are people, human beings there that I will never know that then kind of later turned into my parents. I, I wish I could have known them then. But that's not how it works. Yeah, yeah, it's not, it's not how it works at all. I mean, my, my parents, um, particularly my dad, tells me these stories of things that he did, and I just kind of look at him like, really? You, like, you you did that? <laughs> um, so, yeah, there is there are these there are these mysteries and these, these secret stories that we don't sort of have either any access to at all or, or complete access to. We mm-hmm. don't seem to... We don't seem to get kind of the full picture, whether it's... Um, a story not being told or just sort of the how the dynamic works the inability of of children to see their parents as people really and not um not just as parents mm-hmm. yeah definitely and particularly in the book i think there's a lot of that directed at the at the women as well mm-hmm. um being seen as sort of mothers rather than whole people or as as somewhat girlfriends to come and save or you know all that sort of um, all that sort of boxing that we do of one another, yeah. <laughs> trying yeah. to force people into these roles, you know, that they never, they can never, one role can never be the whole truth of a person. Yeah, and one of the one of the other things, and and we have talked about this a little bit before, but one of the other things that I really loved about this book is your inclusion of uh, the Bayou Tapestry, which of course is. Not actually tapestry, it's an embroidery, but yeah. <laughs> uh, it doesn't sound as cool. Um, so why why was the Bayou Tapestry such an important part of um, the fabric, which is a terrible pun. I, I totally admit that that was an awful pun, but why is the Bayou Tapestry such an important part of the fabric of the Comet Seekers? Oh, that's, there's so many ways to answer that. I think um, the, the idea for the book started with a, with a combination of two things. I knew that I wanted to write about science, about astronomy, about comets somehow. But I also knew I wanted there to be a really strong historical element. Um, I knew that I was somehow writing about the present as a product of the past, you know, how what's come before. You can't be ignored, you know, it's, it's part of what we are now. Um, and so I was trying to think of a historical, something that combined this sort of sense of history with, with comets or the stars or the night sky. Um, and of course, I thought of the, the Bio Tapestry because of the beautiful embroidery of Halley's Comet on it, um, which is which is quite famous. And I thought, I thought maybe that's a starting point. So I looked it up, uh, you know, on the internet. It's, I think I've seen it in person once when I was at school many many years ago. Um, I'm not even quite sure that I did. I might have just imagined that. Um, <laughs> but certainly, I've looked at it many times now on the internet. Um, and it's it's really a fabulous piece of embroidery because underneath. Um, underneath the comet, you've got this group of soldiers who are kind of standing up, looking at it in awe. Um, and, and I think they look so modern in a way. You know, elsewhere on the tapestry, everyone's kind of killing each other and, and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you've just got these people who could be, you know, they could be guys, you know, students now just staring up, looking at the sky and thinking, wow, you know, that's that's amazing. Um, and I thought that's that feeling, that the way that they in the past could look up and love the sky is the way that Rasheen now in Ireland is looking up and loving the sky. And I thought that's the connection. Um, 
So that's when I that's when the the biotapestry first arrived in the book. Yeah, that's great. Um, but I, I didn't stop there. I, I started doing a, a more research and reading about it and looking at it day after day. As um, every good academic does. I'm sorry. As as every good academic does. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, and I came across El Elskifu, yeah. who you might actually know how to pronounce her name correctly. <laughs> uh, I I wouldn't bet money on that, but okay. Uh, what would you say, Elskifu? I yeah, that's not, I mean, it sounds about right to me. Okay, good. Uh, well, Elskifu is is how I've been pronouncing her. Um, and uh, she's one of the mysteries of the tapestry, and I love this idea of the mm -hmm. mysteries of the tapestry that there's this. Uh, incredibly well-studied, well-known uh, historical embroidery. And there's loads of bits of it that we just don't understand. You know, we don't know where they came from or what they were about or what they meant. Um, and I decided to start telling her story. Um, and uh, without wanting to give away too much of the plot of the book, I can tell you that she becomes one of the one of the main characters and her story is quite pivotal um, to the to the plot of the novel. Yeah, she is. She's a very good connecting piece for all of the various puzzle pieces that that the Common Seekers lays out. Yeah, and she was she was also. I mean, that whole part was was one of my one of my favorite parts. It was really great to to read a story of someone who I've heard about before and thought about before, but didn't really know that much about. So it was it was a nice experience to imagine who that person could be. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's wonderful, isn't it, to think that she she almost certainly was a real person. At least that's my that's my understanding. Is that it's it's thought that she was a real person, and yeah. it was perhaps a scandal or something something that had happened at the time that people would have been familiar with then. Yeah, but the, those details have been lost, and we've no idea now who she was. But I love the idea that she was she was a person. She had a whole life, and now she's just standing there in the embroidery, looking defiant <laughs> yeah yeah completely completely defiant it was really great it's one of my favorite images from the from the tapestry um this nice this nice image of this woman refusing refusing to, refusing to kneel refusing to, to to kind of bend and yield to to the pressure that is literally right in front of her in the in the form of that cleric yes absolutely yeah so okay last question uh this question is kind of our recurring question since this is for Harper Academic, our primary audience is going to be teachers and students. Mm -hmm. Who was your favorite teacher? Who is my favorite teacher? Yeah, you can also pick more than one here too. <laughs> so as not to offend anyone. Um, I had two, two jumped into my head, so I'll go with them. Okay. Um, I had a, a wonderful physics teacher, Mr. Horsley was his name. Um, and he was, he was really exciting because when he arrived in the school, he arrived after I'd been at the school for, for a while, and he was teaching us physics, and he picked up a, a chemistry book, and he said, do you want to forget about this? And he hurled it across the room, and it smashed in the far wall. <laughs> I've never studied science like this before. <laughs> um, so he was one, certainly. He got me very excited about science. Um, I think that was maybe when I started seeing, uh, seeing physics as a very real career, sort of career move for me. Um, and the other one was uh, my my Latin teacher, Miss Harcourt, um, and she taught me Latin and classical civilizations at school. Um, and she was she was just wonderful. She was the quietest woman. She was incredibly mild mannered, but she just absolutely adored ancient history. And I could just listen to her talk and see her her little eyes kind of light up, imagining these these ancient worlds. So I think that's where my love of history and archaeology came from. That's great. 
That's great. <laughs> well, thank you so much for letting us call today. Oh, it's been a pleasure. It thank has you. been an absolute pleasure. I'm so glad that we finally got to talk to each other with this Twitter back and forth. Have a great rest of your day, Helen. Thank you so much. You do. Thanks. Bye. Bye.